Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. As you're turning there, let me tell you what we are about to embark on over the next few weeks. And that is a study of marriage and the family. This is something that I've been talking about with the staff and elders for several years. It's something that I've been drawn to because of my own desire to be a better husband and a better father, a better pastor, a better counselor, a better shepherd. And so we're gonna take some time out of our study of the book of Mark and just pull the car over and enjoy some time during our summer series to look at the glory of God and the gift of the family. I wanna alert your attention to a significant passage and a follow-up passage as we begin this study. Psalm 68, verse six, the New American Standard reads, God makes a home for the lonely. Now, although that is completely true, the Hebrew is more specific. Here's a better translation. God makes the solitary to dwell in a home. In other words, God makes people to live in homes, in households. God said it specifically in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, when he said, It is not good for the man to be alone by himself. So he creates Eve. We'll be looking at that in just a few weeks. But what he's saying in essence is we were created for familial relationships. God invented the family. God designed the family. And God gives the gift of family to humans. Now, this gift is what we call common grace. Common grace is something that God does as a kindness, as a gift, as a benevolence to all of mankind. He reigns on the just and the unjust. We, we have beautiful uh, fruit. I had a peach this last week that was just, I took a bite of that peach and I said, God, thank you for peaches. I mean, he didn't have to do that with our taste buds and peaches. That's a common grace. Believers and unbelievers can enjoy that peach. The family is a common grace. Both believers and unbelievers can enjoy it. However, there are few things about which people are more confused than the nature and the purpose of the family, of marriage, of parenting, of what it means to be an obedient child. This is clearly observed and proven by the realities of just looking around in our culture. You have divorce, gender dysphoria or confusion or dissatisfaction, transgenderism, homosexuality, abortion, emotional and physical unfaithfulness in marriage, pornography, disobedience to parents, premarital sex and fornication, affairs, Lonely spouses who feel trapped in their marriages. Constant conflict in families and the inability to resolve these conflicts. Parents who are too strict. Parents who are too lenient. And homes in which family members 
would rather avoid than enjoy. Family's in trouble in our day and only God can rescue our minds and our experience in the fullness of the joy that he expects us to encourage and engage in the family. Let me start by saying this. My, both of my parents, I'm pretty sure, are in heaven, but I, I grew up in a broken home. I grew up in a family that was, um, I think we would call it dysfunctional today. I didn't know, have that terminology when I was growing up. Uh, I don't remember my mother and father sleeping in the same room until, except maybe a few times when I was very young. They divorced when I was 18. Um, I remember having friends over to my house and making excuses for why my dad was in another room. And I, I, I didn't understand what I didn't understand. Fast forward to being a man in seminary and trying to work out relationships, trying to understand marriage, trying to understand uh, uh, what a family would be, uh, meeting this beautiful woman named Kim. And then the utter panic that I cycled through, and frankly, I probably still cycle through that panic now, that I just don't know what I'm doing. I never saw it modeled at home. But by God's kindness, and by God's goodness and by God's grace, he began to surround me with godly families. I can think of specific men that I could name right now who I thought, I, I want to be like that as a husband. I want to be like that as a father. And the reason I tell you that is, is just from my own testimony to say that the church is intended to be a significant model for what God expects in the family. Many of us grew up in homes that were not model. Having said all that, I loved my father. He was the greatest influence in my life. I loved my mother. She was a wonderful influence that, that I still quote to this day. But I would not want to emulate the way that they responded to each other. That set me on a course pretty early in my marriage to my bride of thinking I need help. I need hope. I need correction, I need instruction, I need to look to models, and I'm hoping that that's what we're going to be able to do in this series together. Divinely ordered homes, divinely ordered marriages, divinely ordered parenting, and divinely ordered singleness ought to stand out as different, as distinct, as attractive, as unique in a world that's ultimately dysfunctional and sinful in his view of the marriage, of marriage and the family rather. Like I said, for the past few years, I've wanted to do a study on this and I've been taking a lot of notes to myself. I think we're going to be able to do this this summer, but I am not making any promises or commitments. I'm gonna tackle it together over the next few weeks. The greater heading is the glory of God and the gift of the family. All I'm going to do today is introduce it. And you might want to oil up the spines of your Bibles. We are going to turn to a lot of passages and it might be okay just to write them down and listen. I just want to take you to the banquet table, the, the buffet of God's instruction on marriage and the family and singleness and parenting and let you see that there's a lot to take in here. 
We need to be honest in our hearts here at the beginning of this study to recognize that, that there are temptations that you already have in your heart that you might not recognize, but they are crucial and critical to identify. If you don't recognize the temptation that's in your heart toward any sin, you won't be equipped to fight it. Let me throw a couple out. Here's some temptations. If you're married, you'll be tempted to think that you might be happier if you'd never gotten married and stayed single. Or you might be tempted to think, I would be happier in the whispers of your heart married to someone else. Or maybe... I would have a happier marriage if my spouse will get his or her act together. Just wonder for a moment if your spouse is thinking that too, but that's for another time. Or you may be thinking if you're single that you would find ultimate happiness if you were married. Here's what I've learned in doing well over 200 weddings and lots of marital counseling. Lonely, discontent, single people make lonely, discontent, married people. Or you might be tempted to think you'd be happier with different parents. I remember when one of my sons was very young saying, or younger I should say, you are the strictest parents in the world. And my first question was, how did you know that? Have you interviewed every parent on the planet? And so I asked that question to which the response was, I don't need to because it's obvious. Okay, it's good to know. Or maybe if you're, uh, uh, if you're living in your home, I, you, I'd be happier if mom and dad gave me everything I wanted. Or you'd be happier as a parent with more obedient children, if they would just line up and love the Lord and love me on the way to church in the morning. I said one time, preaching um, at another church with my son on the front row, I feel like Satan goes to church every Sunday and he gets a ride to church in my car. <laughs> After which my son leaned over to my wife and said, why is dad talking about me? Or you'd be happier with more children, less children, no children altogether, a, a whole quiver full of children. You will be tempted during this series, series also to think that some of this just doesn't apply to me. Nothing could be farther from the truth. To understand the biblical roles and goals of the family inform your understanding of God himself. And the more you can understand the roles and the functions of the family, the better you can serve and pray for others in the family. The family of God, to which you are all members as believers. Husbands, you should understand God's expectations for wives, not to lord that over them, but to know how to serve and pray for them. Wives, you should understand as we're going through the duties and roles and goals of a husband, what God expects from your husband so you can serve him and pray for him and encourage him. Singles, you should understand God's expectation for married people so you can pray for us and care for us. And married people ought to understand the unique advantages and opportunities that singles have. 
Children should understand what God expects of parents and vice versa. The point is, all of us should be tuned in to all of these requirements and admonitions and expectations of the Lord. Every part of God's word is applicable. And just as you should never skip a portion of God's word, can you imagine reading through Ephesians and getting to Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 on marriage and the gospel and just saying, ah, this is not for me. I'm only 16. I'm gonna jump down to chapter six. No, you don't skip things. All of it is for us. We learn from God for each other with each other. So don't skip out. Don't give your heart a holiday during any part of this, this series. Now, the place to begin thinking about family issues is to embrace God's perfect providence. This is important. We're laying some critical foundational work this morning. God's providence is at work in your family. God's providence was at work in my broken home as I grew up. Think about this. You are the result. You sitting here are the result of God bringing together two cells from your parents out of millions and billions of possible combinations. And yet he brought you into existence. Your parents were born in the same generation. They found each other out of a population of 7.7 billion people. That means, by the way, that each of us has roughly almost 4 billion people to choose from from her spouse, roughly. Simply put, and I love this phrase, not original with me, providence happens. Providence happens. The sovereignty of God, when we talk about God being sovereign, that's God's way up there, way out there, exercising sovereignty over the whole universe, and that's true. Providence, however, is an application of sovereignty where he actually gets involved in your life. God has never made an accident, had an accident. God has never made a mistake. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, called according to his purpose. Think about that, Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, who you wed, the children God gives you, the parents you were given, kind in all his deeds. Psalm 119, verse 68, in the middle of a trouble and a trial, that stanza where, where the psalmist is saying, life is falling apart, I would have gone astray unless you had afflicted me. He says, Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good, God, and you do good. Psalm 115, verse three, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's important to remember that you didn't just show up in this family and God said, uh-oh, or whoops. He did not make a mistake and he intends for you to operate as a reflection of his glory in whatever family relationships you find yourself in. So over the next few weeks, what we wanna do is talk about, and this is important, Listen really carefully. Developing and maintaining a, a theology of marriage and family. Now to have a theology about something simply is a way to say, to think about something biblically, to think about something rightly, to think about something under the, under the category of God's expectations and God's grace. 
To think biblically is to think what God thinks. To think theologically is to think how God thinks. And here's the reality. We've said this before about other things. You right now have a developed, a highly developed theology of marriage and singleness and parenting and being a child. You have a highly developed theology of that whether you recognize it or not. We need to measure that philosophy, that theology against scripture in the coming weeks. By default, we think about marriage and family relationships based on what we've experienced or what we've idealized. I wrote this in my notes. I was going over it this morning and I thought, this is not gonna make sense to everyone, but the people to whom it makes sense, it will. (laughs) Some of us look at the dark experiences of a dysfunctional family. Others look at the wonderful experience of a godly family. Our experience plays into our expectations, but so does our idealized or idyllic view of the family and marriage. I remember growing up, watching a show, and I literally thought, that's how marriage and family is supposed to work. It was called Leave It to Beaver. (laughs) Ward Cleaver was such a nice father. Joan was such a sweetheart. I mean, there was Eddie Haskell, but just trust me, that was for comic relief. I remember, okay, honest question. How many of you have no idea what Leave It to Beaver is? Would you raise your hand? Ryan, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> the, pro, the point is, I remember looking at that thinking, that's how families should work. God has given us something better than leave it to beaver. He's given us his word. And he's also given us examples. In this church, I'm looking around right now at families, at fathers and mothers, and I want so badly to be able to point younger men and women to you and say, follow them as they follow Christ. A few opening reminders as we dive into this. Remember that all of God's word has implications for you. I know that if you're a younger single, an older single, that you could think, oh, we're gonna hear about Husbands and wives, and that's not for me. No, it has a lot to do with you because to understand husbands and wives rightly is to understand the gospel rightly. Then in a few weeks, we're gonna be looking at what, what the glories and advantages of singleness are. And as a married person, you go, you'll say, ah, I, I graduated from that. No, you need to understand how to serve and be served by our singles as well. Also remember that... <laughs> Listen first for yourself. Listen first for yourself. I've planned out the series. I've looked at what we're gonna do. And I know there's going to be a temptation when we're talking about husbands for our precious sweet wives in the building to go. We're gonna have a good conversation at lunch today. And for the husbands to go, yeah, you should be listening right now. Or parents about children and children about parents. There's a right way to listen for someone else if you want to serve them to be more obedient. There's a wrong way to listen where you're judging them and thinking, I'm better than you. 
Listen first for yourself. Listen with and for each other. Listen to what God says about this. Let's make this paradigmatic for all of us. But be the first target of God's word, your own heart. And one last reminder, and if I could get on my knees and beg you and it would help, I would do that. Extend grace, the same grace you've been given. I have every confidence we're gonna be talking about, we're gonna get into husbands and fathers next week, that anyone, myself included, we're gonna look at that and say, oh man, I... I wish I had a mulligan. I wish I had a do-over. Wish I could have a retry. And you may think that about someone else. Let's, let's swim in God's grace during this series. Let's extend it. Let's extol it. Let's enjoy it. Let's rejoice in it. So for today, I want to simply understand why it's so important to develop and maintain a biblically informed theology of marriage and the family. It's going to be introductory. It's going to be fast. You might be better served to write down some of these passages and just listen. As an outline, we're going to look at five reasons to develop and maintain a theology of marriage and the family. Five reasons to develop and maintain a theology of marriage and the family. The first is this, number one, the first reason to understand God himself. To better understand, to understand God himself. Let me say it negatively. It is impossible to understand God himself without understanding aspects of marriage and the family. You say, how, how can we possibly even say that? Well, everything God does has a theological significance. God does nothing without specific theological applications, implications, and insights, including marriage and families. The Bible uses metaphors. And analogies, more about marriage and the family in reference to explaining to us who God is and what he's like than any other metaphor. Think about this. Just, we're gonna be fast. God reveals himself as a father. As a father. Exodus 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, talking to Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, my oldest son. So I have said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you have refused to let him go, go, behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And we know that from the book of Exodus. That's what happened in the, in the great Passover. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here we find out God is the Father, not just of believers specifically. We'll see that in a moment. But in a sense, God is the Father of all, meaning God is the source 
1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. God represents himself. He, he tells us himself he is a father. How do we understand that? Unless you understand what a father is biblically, you have a, an opportunity to be grossly misunderstanding who God is in his essence, in his communication to us. The New Testament provides a fuller picture of God as father. Jesus often referred to God as the father of Israel, John 5 verse 18. But there's a sense in which God is uniquely the father of Jesus. He says, my father, John 17. But remember that Jesus instructs us to pray like this. How does the Lord's prayer begin? Our father, which art in heaven. God stands in fatherly relationship to his people in a specific, nuanced, family way. He's also the first person of the Trinity who is fully God. He's Jesus' father and our father, and that is a mystery we marvel at, we don't unpack and fully understand. Also, God reveals himself as a husband. In Jeremiah 3.8, Jeremiah writes, and I saw that for all the adulteries of, the fa of fatherless, faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear me, but she went also and played the harlot. God says to Israel, I was your husband and you were unfaithful, which made you an adulterer to me. He uses that language. If we don't understand husbandry and what uh, faithful uh, 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 execution of being a wife is, we, we can't understand God's relationship. Jesus also reveals that he has a sibling relationship with believers. Hebrews 2.11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Wow. Remember, we looked at this in Mark chapter three. Jesus was saying to a crowd, referencing his own natural siblings and his own mother, he said, Looking around at those who were sitting, this is Mark 3.34, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. These were people who were not his immediate family, but those who believed in him. And I love this. Oh, I love this. John chapter one, verses 12 and 13. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become what? Children of God. Children of God. Not of flesh and blood, but of the will of God. Listen to God's heart as a father to the orphans in Israel. In Jeremiah 49, 11, leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. I will adopt them as my own. Romans chapter eight, we'll get to this in a few weeks even explains more fully that God has adopted us as sons and daughters, giving the family relationship meaning 
from those who have been ostracized to those who've been embraced. Importantly, the sovereign God of the universe is father of all people as source, but specifically to those who are believers as a heavenly father. So it's important to get the analogies correct. We'll we'll talk about this in the coming weeks. We should not look to our fathers on earth and our siblings on earth and then back at God to understand him. We don't look at the replica to understand the original. Rather, we look at God the Father, Jesus our brother, and then we understand what it means to be fathers and siblings. And wonderfully, as we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus is the ultimate single who ever lived. Fully satisfied, full ministry, full grace, and never married. So we understand God himself by understanding the family. He is stamped in the image of God on us this this void of not understanding relationships without understanding the family. Number two, a second reason to develop and maintain a theology of marriage in the family. Number two, to understand God's family. Now, in the Old Testament, this would have been Israel, specifically in the New Testament. It's our ecclesiology. It's the church. Let me say it negatively. It is impossible to understand God's relationship with people specifically his bride, the church, without understanding marriage and the family. Listen to what God calls through the Holy Spirit in the writing of the pen of the Apostle Paul, the church. 1 Timothy 3.15. In case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household, the home, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He says the church is to have a symbiotic relationship in in terms of function with a nuclear family. Peter picks up on the same thing, 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. The Holy Spirit inspired scripture to teach and inform us how to write rightly function and minister in the body of Christ by understanding that we're siblings under our great big brother, the Lord Jesus, and our great heavenly father, the first person of the Trinity. Paul actually uses the idea of the family to say, here's how you even relate to each other. Listen to How could you understand this without understanding a family? 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. Here's how you come to an older man who you want to correct, Paul says. 1 Timothy 5, 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as father. That tells us, first of all, how a son should respond to his father. A daughter ought to respond respond to their father and you do that same care with someone who's older and to the younger men as brothers you don't trash and treat people with disdain who are your brothers and if you do there's a sermon upcoming for you 
Then he says in verse two, and the older men as mothers, if you're going to correct, if you're going to confront, if you're going to shepherd, someone who's older than you, look to them as a mother, not just someone who's your buddy. And the younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul understood ministry from the perspective, relational perspective of the family. Let me read you all 12 verses of the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. Maybe just listen to this. Listen to the, to the familial understanding of ministry that Paul has. Paul tells the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, you yourselves know, brethren, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation, our correction, our encouragement does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even at, though we were apostles of Christ, and we might have asserted our authority. So I had the right to come and flex my apostolic muscles, but we proved to be gentle among you. And when Paul explains what it means to be gentle, listen to what he says. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul said, I will look to a wife and mother and understand something about ministry. He's not done. Having so fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul says, a faithful father instructs us on how to be right ministers in the body of Christ. And a faithful mother instructs us as well. This doesn't blur the lines between complementarianism and egalitarianism. Paul says there are graces in motherhood and fatherhood that ought to be employed as we shepherd and care for one another. 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I, listen, he, he's like a father of a, of a young woman. I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. In other words, I cared for you so much. You were like a daughter to me whose purity I was protecting and caring for and shepherding. We'll come back to a lot of this, but know that 
Understanding the family dynamics from a biblical perspective gives us insights into understanding God and secondly, understanding his family. Number three, to understand the gospel, we need a theology, a developed and maintained theology of marriage and the family to understand the gospel. Said negatively, it is impossible to understand the gospel rightly without understanding marriage specifically and the family. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, what? Son. Without an understanding of a father's love for his son, you'll miss the sacrifice that God the Father eternally, infinitely, deeply made in the sacrifice of his son. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? And then we'll study this in depth in the coming weeks. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 Basically, he's saying, husbands, have loving leadership to your wives like Christ has loving leadership to the church. Wives, have faithful following and submission to your husbands as Christians are to have faithful following submissions to the Savior himself. And we'll be drilling down into that passage quite a bit in the coming weeks. The point is this. These metaphors are used, this theology is used by the apostles to teach us about the gospel. Why? Because they're the tightest, most intimate relationships we have on the planet. So just mark that, dog ear that in your, in your mind. We will be coming back to this over and over. Number four, to understand human relationships or to understand relationships. Said negatively, it is impossible to understand human relationships without understanding marriage and the family. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the disciplines of the Lord or loathe his reproof. So the father talking to his son, Solomon talking to Rehoboam. Then he changes it in verse 12. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So that relationship that God the Father shares with his followers has a paradigm, has a, has a common focus with a father, earthly father and his sons. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 describes this in great detail. In verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
Then he adds this footnote. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then in Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In other words, we understand relationships in general by understanding our relationship with God the Father. Giving and correcting and training, disciplining, exhorting, encouraging, all that comes from understanding God's care for us and how we care for the others. Which leads to fifthly, our last, developing and maintaining a theology of marriage in the family, we need to understand ourselves. We must have this to understand ourselves. Think for a moment about what has already been implied. You are a son or a daughter of someone. Oh, I know your parents may be gone, but you are a son or a daughter of someone. None of you were hatched. You were born to a father, to a mother. Also, you may be a father or a mother. You are likely, unless you're an only child, a brother or a sister. And these fundamental relationships tell us much about ourselves. The metaphors that we're going to unpack in the coming weeks from, from Paul and from Peter, from Moses, imply that you can understand yourself best by understanding yourself in the context of how a family relates to you and sees you and how you see yourself in that family because those are the principles that God lays out to build on for you to become a responsible Christian, a responsible person, in the church, a servant in the church and someone who pleases the heavenly father. So we're gonna be looking at ourselves by looking at these patterns, these metaphors, these motifs. So let me send you out of this introduction with four requests. I could have probably done 10, but I'm gonna limit it to four. First of all, you've heard this already, be careful not to become judgmental of others, but look to yourself first, please. It's going to be so easy to say, well, my dad should or should have heard this or my wife or my husband or my child or someone should have heard this. Look to yourself first. Secondly, look to how the image of God is stamped on your identity as a family member. Jesus is a sibling to us. God is a Father to us. Because that's who he is, dimensions of his image have been put in our heart, conscience, worldview, and understanding. Let's, let's fan the flames of what God wants us to understand from these, we call them ontological realities, these parts of who we really are. Third, learn to pray for your own situation as well as others in their own roles, learn to pray. 
it would be unreasonable to think that if we're talking about husbands and you're a wife that you wouldn't say, my husband needs some help here. We will be having those conversations at lunch in the coming weeks in my household, I can assure you. Or vice versa. It's wonderful to recognize those, be an encouragement and a prayer warrior on those things. Singles, pray for us who are married. Married, pray for those who are single. Let's be sympathetic to those who've experienced a divorce, to those who've been widowed, to those who've been orphaned, to those who've been adopted. Let's become sensitive to the way God sees the people around us. And then lastly, let's look to this series as a compass that points to the gospel. That God sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but live forever with him. That he sacrificed his son to pay for our sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but he sent his only begotten son to pay for the sins of those who have believed. If you're wondering what that means, can I just urge you before you leave today to talk to someone around you, to come to our prayer room, to to say, I need, I need some perspective on this. And interestingly, as we explain this to you, we will likely use metaphors that are from the family. So I guess all of this is, is just a way to say, can you buckle up and get ready? I am praying, I hope I'm not gonna be in trouble with you, but I have prayed for you for weeks pastors and elders have been praying for you and for this series, that it would really, as my dad used to say, get in our kitchen. It would rearrange our thinking. It would magnetize us to God and his word that we would be correctable and corrected. Because if we do, we will more closely enjoy the blessings that God wants us to enjoy in marriage and the family. I know there are things that are broken that will never be fixed. But God still has us look to his word to be a better Christian for his glory and to those around us.